Hello and welcome to Opinionated Science, the podcast from Technology Networks. On Opinionated Science, we take lumps of scientific jargon and blend them into something palatable. I'm Rory McKenzie, your host for today's episode, in which we're going to take a look at a new study that challenges the idea that our gut microbiome might play a causal role in Autism Spectrum Disorder, or ASD. One of the hottest topics in research today is the microbiome, the community of bacteria and microorganisms that call our bodies home. We've discussed the numerous links between our microbiome and health in previous episodes of Opinionated Science, and research has looked at not just its relationship to gut health, but also to our brain and mental health. And this link is thought to be established by signalling through the gut's own nervous system, the enteric nervous system, which relays signals from our GI tract to the brain and back. Now, the idea here is that gut bacteria can release certain chemical signals, such as short-chain fatty acids, or SCFAs, that have been detected in cerebrospinal fluid that might in some way alter signalling in the brain and, and, and lead to these changes in brain health and mental health. Now, neuroscience isn't alone in having a case of microbe fever. Research, for example, has looked at the ability of um, specific bacteria within the microbiome to fight cancer, mount particular immune responses, or even treat rare metabolic deficiencies. But some findings in neuroscience in particular have proved too good to ignore. One paper published in Scientific Reports suggested that in a group of 18 autistic children, transferring microbiota from non-autistic children could, over time, alter both related gastrointestinal problems that the kids were suffering and behaviours common to autism. Now, in today's episode, we're going to take a look at the other side of this coin. A new study published in Cell has challenged one of the most ambitious claims of microbiome research, namely that modulating gut bacteria could lead to these improvements in autism spectrum disorder. Now, I should say right now that this is quite a controversial research area and uh, in my opinion it seems to pit some autism groups and patient groups against um, academia and research and within research it seems some of the language around autism very much is looking to kind of fix the disorder somehow and studies are still quite routinely looking at rescuing autistic behaviors or traits or minimizing them whereas autism groups such as um, one of the the largest um, autism charities, Autism Speaks, now prefer to not use this kind of language and talking about autism. Autism Speaks made a, a very public change to their kind of uh, mission statement recently in which they moved away from looking for a cure for autism, rather instead looking at um, improving the lives of people with autism. And it feels like, to me at least, academia and research maybe needs to at some point ask exactly what they are wanting to fix when treating autism. Uh, As many autistic people, of course, do not want to be cured. They see their autism as part of their personality. And while the condition does sometimes have comorbid conditions like gastrointestinal problems, which it seems reasonable to want to try and remedy, often feels like this nuance is lacking when I read of a lot of autism research between co-occurring comorbid symptoms and the fundamental uh, behavioral traits of autism. And I think an entire other podcast could be released on this topic alone, uh, but I think it's important to mention this at least briefly when we're discussing autism research like we are in this podcast. So moving on from that bit of background onto the current study. Now this study, which you can read in Cell in our show notes, was published by a group of Australian researchers 
and it uses the largest cohort yet seen in an autism microbiome study. Nearly 250 children were involved. And I spoke recently to the study's senior author, the University of Queensland's Dr. Jake Gratton, on the study's key aims. And you can hear from Jake now. Well, uh, as you are probably aware, there's a lot of hype around the idea that bacteria in our gut, the gut microbiome, um, can, may contribute to, to brain development and also diagnosis of autism. Um, so we wanted to, to cut through that hype um, and try to provide some, some clarity to the community by doing a larger and better controlled study. Uh, so ours is the largest study so far. Um, there are just under 250 children in the study, um, about 100 autistic children and about 150 children without a diagnosis, but that includes some siblings. So Grattan's study didn't just have a massive cohort, which gives it, of course, a higher statistical power and a better chance of proving or disproving its hypothesis, but it also used genomic techniques that could examine the microbiome in greater detail than before or in previous studies. Uh, a lot of previous studies in this area use something called 16S ribosomal sequencing, whereas Grattan's study used metagenomic analysis, uh, which gives a, a deeper look into the, the genome, as we'll hear from Grattan now. With the full metagenomic sequencing, we're just getting much better resolution, both of taxonomic diversity. Um, it's partly because uh, we, we have access to a really huge database of full uh, bacterial genomes. And, and so um, uh, we, you know, for example, the species that we identified that was differentially abundant in autism, we wouldn't have identified if we'd used 16S barcoding, I don't think. Um, we're not making too much of that discovery. I think it needs to be replicated, but that's just an example. So we have finer taxonomic resolution, and we also have information that's functional. So we know uh, we have information on what genes are present in the community as well. And it's a large number, as you probably would have seen in, in the paper. Yeah. In fact, it's slightly too many for us to contemplate even doing an analysis at the gene level uh, we need much bigger samples, you know, sample size before we can think about doing that. But hopefully, you know, this study is the precursor of much larger studies and potentially studies where people start to harmonise the approach in terms of how the sequencing is done, but also all the metadata that's associated with those, um, with those samples in such a way that in future, as a community, we can come together to do much more powerful meta-analyses. So using these techniques, Grattan's team decided to look at their cohort of autistic and non-autistic children and see whether there are associations between the species of microbiota in their stomachs and their likelihood of being autistic or not. They created a quantification measure called the Microbiome Association Index, which is represented in the paper as a proportion, a percentage. This is similar to heritability, which measures to what extent variation in traits can be explained by genetic variation. Here, they looked at what, to what extent variation in traits like age, autism status, uh, diet could be explained by variation in the genetic makeup of their microbiome or the species present in their microbiome. Now, the team's signature finding was that while there were links between the kids' microbiota and the kind of foods they ate, their diet, and also their stool consistency, which here they took as a, a proxy for kind of gut health because they didn't have that kind of medical data available. There was almost no direct link between diversity of the kid's microbiota and any diagnosis of autism. This is what Grattan had to say about their key findings. 
so what we found is that um, rather than uh, the microbiome contributing to autism, uh, really it looks like uh, it's the other way around. It's characteristics of autism that contribute to the microbiome. And if you're wondering how that might work, what we see is that autistic children are more likely to have a highly selective diet, um, you know, consistent with the, the, the um, fact that children with a diagnosis are more likely to have some sensory sensitivities. So if food doesn't smell great or doesn't feel nice in your mouth and you're less likely to eat that, more likely to focus on those smaller number of, of foods that you really enjoy. Um, and also, if you like doing the same things over and over again, uh, maybe that sort of uh, translates over to eating the same foods, you know, repeatedly. Yeah, so it makes sense. But it's really that restricted diet that is um, that we see in autistic children compared to those without a diagnosis that is appears to be driving the changes that we see in in the microbiome. And then in turn, um, so we see uh, yeah we see really strong evidence for a less diverse diet in autism that is associated with a less diverse microbiome, and in turn, a less diverse microbiome is associated with looser, more diarrhea-like stools, which is interesting because um, these types of GI problems, including constipation and diarrhea, are much more prevalent in autistic people. So with that headline finding that there's no direct link between the types of microbiota present in um, autistic kids' stomachs and the likelihood of being autistic in the first place, there are three issues that I see being raised, which I'll list in order of importance. Number one, how can we use these results to benefit the lives of autistic kids? Number two, what does this mean for the field of microbiome autism research? And three, what does this mean for other microbiome research fields? As I mentioned earlier, the microbiome's association to health and disease has been measured in pretty much every disease you can think of up to this point. So what does it mean for those? Well, looking at that first point, Grattan says that it might still be possible to treat some of the GI symptoms experienced by autistic kids by altering their microbiome, but not their other traits. You know, one of the implications is uh, for parents and autistic people is that probably um, if you're seeking to influence autistic traits uh, through diet or through interventions that might modify the microbiome, then our research suggests that that's not going to um, that's not going to work um, because it's it's a kind of a top-down behaviour influence in the microbiome kind of scenario rather than the other way around. Um, of course, it is possible that that, that diet and, um, you know, a, a, a sort of more balanced, healthy diet, uh, which uh, results in a, a sort of more diverse microbiome, might help to alleviate some of these GI issues which are, are common in autistic people. Grattan admits that more research needs to be done as the team had no way of knowing which of their kids actually reported GI problems in the study and, as I mentioned earlier, instead used the consistency of their poo as a proxy. And of course, this is just one study, as Grattan also admits, but it is much bigger and more powerful than previous studies that had suggested ASD as a whole might somehow be altered by changing uh, microbiota. And Grattan says that uh, maybe a bigger study with a more ambitious design could definitively rule out a link and I think in the long term, but it's really tricky, is contemplating uh, longitudinal um, um, studies where we can relate um, 
um, serial um, uh, uh, samples of stool and looking at the microbiome early in development, I mean, you know, postnatal development, early in childhood, essentially, in, in infancy, and then relate that to subsequent diagnosis of autism um, to see if that early life microbiome has anything to do with autism, because that's the thing that we can't rule out with our study design, which is a cross-sectional um, design uh, where we've collected stool after diagnosis. And, and of course, that is a, that's a limitation that we acknowledge. And I know that it will be um, a point that is raised by people who are, you know, really convinced that there is a contribution of the microbiome to behavior, that they will say, well, you can't rule it out. And, and that's, that's actually true. So the problem is actually trying to conceive of such an experiment or study design because, you know, 1% of children will receive a diagnosis of autism. Um, so you would need to recruit uh, a lot of families and follow a lot of families over many years um, in order to end up with data where you have um, a reasonable subset of children who, who actually developed autism yeah so that's a sort of a catch-22 you don't know who you know you know which child which children are going to get autism um but we would like to know what's going on early in life uh and see if that has anything to do with autism i mean my guess is based on our analyses that it doesn't have anything to do with autism <laughs> but that's the sort of study that might that might help to really nail it down if you'd like to read more about what Grattan thinks specifically about what this means for other autism microbiome research, he's written a piece alongside his co-authors Chloe Yap and Andrew Whitehouse for the conversation, which I'll link in the show notes again, which sums up their findings. So what does it mean finally for the wider field of gut-brain health, gut-brain axis, microbiome research? What, what does a study like this mean for, for that field? Well, in my opinion, this is opinionated science after all, a study's a bit of a cannonball on the, the side of, I think, the most ambitious gut-brain research at least. Now, that's not to say the, the field as a whole is going to be damaged by this because there's so many different aspects of gut-brain health to explore. You know, the techniques that I've mentioned today, metagenomics, 16S sequencing, they've only really come of age in the last 10 years and it's only these techniques that have enabled us to investigate in such detail the amazing uh, variety and depth of bacteria in our stomachs and there's still plenty of questions to be answered so I don't think the, the more general research is going to slow down but the idea that we could just affect neurological and neurodevelopmental conditions with a poo pill I think it has maybe taken a bit of a hit with this study and Grattan's take on this looking at these these other associations for example between the microbiome and dementia is that research will have to proceed on a case-by-case -case basis my personal feeling is that there are many examples where the microbiome has been associated with uh, um, mental health conditions. Yeah, so depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, um, and the list goes on. Also, neurodegenerative conditions. And, um, you know, I, I think uh, it's, it's probably not the same story every time. Um, I think for some conditions, it's kind of plausible that there might be uh, more of a two-way relationship. Um, uh, on the other hand, I think where um, a, 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 diagno a diagnosis um, is, is plausibly related to, to diet, then I think behaviour is, is, you know, the, the, the simplest and most 
uh, parsimonious explanation is that is that behavior is probably influencing the microbiome in that instance. Um, but we won't know until there are bigger studies because as you say, they're all small. And, and I think the other issue is that in many cases, um, you know, it hasn't been possible to, um, you know, carefully adjust for many of the factors that can influence the microbiome. Diet is one of them, but there are many others. And, you know, it's tricky to get that data. Uh, so in some cases, people just haven't been able to. But then it's hard to rule out, um, you know, a contribution of diet to, to the results. So that's all we have time for in this episode of Opinionated Science. And uh, we'll be back in two weeks' time with a very special Christmassy Opinionated Science. Uh, but until then, if you have enjoyed our episode, please do share and subscribe and give us a comment. Please do let us know what you think. Bye for now.